I am pleased uh, to be joined by Karen Fancher, a uh, a rising associate professor of pharmacy practice. See her on the streets, congratulate her on her recent promotion. Uh, welcome to Alka Farm, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and I'm really happy uh, that you're joining me uh, for the second of our conversations with the Cancer Survivor Series. So we're going to talk about, you know, your breast cancer story, and you've been kind enough to, to agree to share with us on the podcast. But just to, so we get to know a little bit about you, tell us, you know, where you grew up, where's home, where'd you go to pharmacy school and residency, that sort of stuff. Sure, sure. Um, so I grew up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which most people know as Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Uh, so I actually grew up as a neighbor of Mr. Rogers' relatives. Um, small town in southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, so I went to pharmacy school at Duquesne in Pittsburgh, and I got both my bachelor's and PharmD there. And then I did a PGY1 residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And I did a PGY2 in oncology at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. Um, and my plan was to come back to Pittsburgh after my one year at Moffitt. But as it turned out, I actually fell in love with Florida, fell in love with Moffitt, uh, met my husband, so fell in love with him too. So I actually stayed at Moffitt for about 10 years. And then about 10 years ago, we lost our minds and moved back to the Pittsburgh area. Like all good Pittsburghers, we came back. <laughs> so um, I was with a private practice group at first in Pittsburgh. Um, but now I have a split position between Duquesne University and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And so your, your breast cancer story starts, um, uh, well, well, tell us, so w were you diagnosed via screening or, or did you have symptoms that, that brought you into the doctor? Sure, sure. So I had absolutely no symptoms at all. Um, when I was 39... I went to my annual gynecologist visit, like a couple months after I turned 39. Uh, routine visit, she didn't notice anything unusual. I had no complaints. Um, she kind of looked at my chart and she said, oh, when I see you next time, so let's just get, get this started. And she handed me a prescription for an amogram and I stuffed it in my purse. <laughs> um, I kind of like, didn't take it super seriously, even though I, you know, I practice in oncology, that just didn't seem like a possibility to me, or it didn't seem like a priority to me. Um, I wasn't 40, and I don't have any history of breast cancer in my family, and I felt great, and I was busy, you know, and all the usual excuses. Um, so I carried that prescription around in my purse for at least two or three months. Yeah. Um, and then ironically, uh, we got to the breast cancer lecture in my class. And I stood up there and I said, the gold standard is a mammogram by the time you turn 40, which it was at that time. This was in 2015. Um, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was kind of like, ooh, that's a little hypocritical. Like I have this prescription in my purse and I haven't done it yet. So I scheduled it. And there it was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely no symptoms or anything. But the, the screening, the screening um, issue is, is uh contentious in some circles and some guidelines say 40 with a very strong recommendation. Some say 50 and there's one that says 45, which seems to be like, eh, we're just going to split the difference. So uh, I think, you know, I can imagine a lot of people kind of being in that camp. And um, I think from, from what I was uh, reading, you know, most women are diagnosed via screening, like 60% are diagnosed uh, with a mammography screening. 
Um, and you mentioned you didn't have a family history. Do you have any other, any other of the risk factors like early first period, uh, um, any of that sort of stuff? Like mildly, like I think I started my period when I was 11. Um, I have two kids and my oldest was born when I was 28. Um, but other than that, like I want to believe I'm not obese. Um, <laughs> I don't drink alcohol real heavily. Um, you know, I haven't been through menopause yet, so I can't comment on that. But I, you know, I never had chest radiation. Um, kind of the usual risk factors you think of. My, my, I thought my risks were pretty low. Yeah, like average risk based on your age. And you had the highest risk factor, which I always stump the students in class. I say, what is the number one risk factor for breast cancer? No, no matter how long I wait, they will never say female sex. They will. They, do, they never. I do have that. <laughs> consider that 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 men get breast cancer. Not very often. There are about 2,079 cases estimated this year, and maybe 1% of those would be men. So, of course, heavily, heavily skewed. Um, so uh, so you, you get the diagnosis, and, you know, what's your, what's your thought process now? Because you, you know this. So are, yeah. you, are you, like, looking, you know, maybe you didn't go, like, what's the stage? You went straight to the, what's the tumor size? When are we going to get the, you know, the, the, you know, the nodal status, you know, what sure. kind of your mind after that? So, I mean, I guess I had all kinds of thoughts. Like, first of all, this has got to be a mistake or this is a joke or I'm dreaming, you know, like all those initial, like, no, this right. can't denial be. stage of, of grieving right there. Oh, I started off heavy in denial. Um, yeah. But then I guess I had convinced myself that this was going to be worst case scenario like i was premenopausal and all, so i was very fixated on what was my hormonal status going to be and i had um convinced myself it was going to be negative i didn't i could be honest i didn't give a whole lot of thought to her two status um and the initial mammogram suggested the tumor wasn't all that big so in my head i was like well this has got to be like a stage one or two but it's probably hormone receptor negative and i was trying to like angle in my head what are all the results before they were actually back so what were the the erpr and her two um so shocker <laughs> so my er was 290 out of 300 and my pr i think was like 185 or 180 um and my oncologist now jokes that like I have the hormonal receptor status of an 80 year old woman, you know, like that's kind of unusual to be that hormone receptor positive at my age. Um, like I remember reading that report and texting my sister who was not in pharmacy at all. My receptors are positive. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe this was not what I had braced myself for. Yeah. That was, I'm not, you know, what I'm used to seeing in the guidelines in our system and the systems I've seen as a percentage of 100 so i'm not used to this this scale that goes up to uh, that goes up to to 300 it sounds like. oh okay yeah so our our hospital reports it as a score out of 300 so um the er was almost 100 percent positive which again okay. i had not really considered as a possibility yeah um, and what about ki67 uh 15 15 so, okay so it's a yeah. just above that 14 percent threshold so um yeah so the, you know, the most common for, for, for listeners, the most common breast cancer, as many of you know, is going to be a, a woman, probably what? Your typical breast cancer is somebody that's going to be 20 or 30 years older than you were at diagnosis, but the same ERPR positive, HER2 negative, or HER2 amplified. And, and based on that, and the KI67 above 
14%. You would be in the, the luminal B molecular subtype that, that some of the folks uh, are moving towards. Okay. Do you remember the size of the tumor? So that was um, changing <laughs> over time. So the original estimates was between two and three centimeters, okay. which was very large considering that my gynecologist hadn't felt it. I never felt that. Um, yeah. But again, um, two to three centimeters. Um, however, they said that it was laying at an odd angle and they weren't 100% sure that was the true volume. So I got an MRI that showed actually two tumors almost on top of each other, like a two centimeter and then a three centimeter. So the whole volume at, after my surgery was almost six centimeters across. Okay. All right. Yeah. So definitely above two, maybe even above five centimeters. All right. Mm -hmm. um, and node negative. The initial ultrasounds and everything was no negative, yeah. Okay. And this is one, if you're a trainee, this is one thing that's somewhat difficult if you try to go back and interpret some of the breast cancer studies is things have changed so much. So now the breast cancer staging incorporates receptor status. So if you had, say, a, you know, a T2 lesion that will be upstaged to a higher you know, severity or if you were triple negative, for example, and stuff is downstaged if you're, if you're hormone receptor positive. Uh, and I don't think that changed until a couple of years ago. So if, it sounds like this happened four or five years ago. That would not have been the case. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you get, um, let's see. So next thing, um, what was the discussion like? You know, because if we went back five, not five years ago, but certainly 10, 15 years ago, a tumor that big, you know, chemotherapy would have been the play, maybe even in the neoadjuvant setting. So what was the discussion like? Do you know, did, did, uh, did Medonc and Surgonc, did they talk together and form a plan or, or how did that go? Um, so I assume that they spoke to each other, um, but I should clarify that I got treated in the same hospital that I practice in, right? So I actually asked... <laughs> not to participate in the tumor board on myself. <laughs> so I assume that they spoke about me. I did not participate. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I would assume that they certainly did. Yeah. Um, so the original plan was this two, cent two to three centimeter tumor um, that I was going to have a lumpectomy. I saw the surgeon, the surgical oncologist who talked to me all about lumpectomies and we talked, you know, all those possibilities and kind of got a target date but the, the surgical oncologist said, you know what, just to be sure, let's get this MRI. And that's when the results came back that it was much larger than we had originally suspected. Um, so over the phone, the surgeon told me that I think the lumpectomy is off the table now. Like you really need to start thinking about a mastectomy. Um, so then I had to go back to the plastic surgeons and some of the other surgeons that I had spoke to. Um, but at no time did we ever talk about neoadjuvant chemo or hormonal therapy. Like that wasn't on my agenda, to be honest with you. Um, I was pretty committed to surgery right out of the gate. So some of that might've been driven by my preferences. Yeah. So as, you know, as, as an oncology pharmacist, I often, uh, to keep things as simple as mind in, in my brain, uh, I'll just say surgery, but there's, sure. it, it's, it's lumpectomy mastectomy, double mastectomy. So what was the, the discussion with the surgical oncologist about why to go with the mastectomy versus lumpectomy, I guess, because of the size of the tumor? Yeah, she was all, the surgeon, surgical oncologist was a female. Um, so she was all about a lumpectomy when we had that original uh, mammogram and ultrasound. Like she was definitely on board with that. And so was I. 
Um, and then when she called and told me that it was so large, she's the one who said, I really don't think we can offer you a lumpectomy right now. Um, and I was again, like, okay, <laughs> like a tumor that size, I wasn't really interested in doing what I considered, a, you know, a less invasive surgery. Um, the medical, I'm sorry, excuse me, the surgical oncologist wanted to stop the conversation there. Like she wanted to say single mastectomy, right? Um, but I was very interested in reconstruction. So I went to the plastic surgeon who told me that if I had a single mastectomy, I would actually have to have a reduction of the remaining breast. So in my mind, they were both kind of goners, right? So not because of a risk, but really because of surgical complications, I went for the double mastectomy because I, I was not having two surgeries if I could avoid that. Um, so maybe that's vain on my part. Um, well, but so I had a double mastectomy it's, um, it's with reconstruction. Not for me to judge <laughs> vanity. <laughs> But I guess the I guess the the point here is the double mastectomy was not for it wasn't for contralateral uh, prophylaxis. It was it was a personal decision for cosmetic or for decreasing complications. It's like this just seems cleaner. I absolutely agree. And when I told the surgical oncologist like this is my decision, she said you have to understand that this is not buy one get one free. Like you could have complications on the other side. The, you know, the unaffected side, like, a, you know, an infection or a hematoma that may delay your treatment later. But I told her I was willing to take the risks. I'd rather have one surgery and one risk of complications instead of two. And she agreed. Like, she just wanted to make sure I understood the okay. decision I was making. Okay. So then at that point, you have the double mastectomy. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you were to do chemo, right, sure. so you have the surgery reconstruction what's the timeline to when everything would have been healed and ready for surgery because we know for adjuvant treatment the earlier the mm -hmm. better like four weeks is better than eight weeks and eight weeks is better than 12 weeks that's been established in breast and colon so what was yeah. the the healing like for that because as pharmacists that's not always something that we uh you know we don't we're not at the post-op checkups necessarily <laughs> to have some insight into that Sure, sure. So I was extremely fortunate. Um, I had essentially no complications. Um, I did have like some physical therapy issues. I did have some like residual motion uh, issues in one of my shoulders, but that was resolved with a couple visits to the physical therapist. Um, so I was so lucky for the kind of surgery that I had um, that I would have, if had I uh, needed to start chemo urgently, I probably could have done it within a month of the surgery. Okay. Um, I was actually cleared to go back to work after three weeks. Okay. So, yeah. Good. But again, so fortunate. So when, you know, we think of, and I'm picturing my slide now, like of all the risk factors for recurrence. Okay. And so didn't have, so no negative. So that's not a risk factor. Tumor size was large. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hormone positive. So you got that in your favor. So before we had some of the, you know, oncotype and things like that, that we have now, if you go back uh, you know, a, a generation or half a generation, there are probably many folks who would have said, you know, just to be safe, because you're young, let's be aggressive and let's, let's do chemo. So what was the discussion like with the medical oncologist about chemo or no? Yeah. Um, so again, I have to be very clear that I chose my own oncologist, right? Because I chose to have treatment at the same cancer center where I work. Um, I kind of had the unique privilege, if you will, of choosing the oncologist I wanted to treat me. 
So I chose the one that I thought would be the most blunt, the most, this is what you need to do and not kind of give me some slack because she knows me or because they like me or they don't like me. Um, but I chose the most blunt of all of them. And I, I don't regret that, but some of her um, lingo might shock other patients. But again, we know each other well. Um, so on my first visit with her, my first official visit, probably two weeks after my surgery, she told me that she did not recommend chemo. And I was stunned. I really thought I was going to that appointment to sign some consent forms and schedule a port placement and all those kinds of things. But she actually said she didn't think that she wanted to do it. Okay. Uh, and that was because of the hormone status and, and the CAI 67 was, it was above 14%, but just barely, right? I mean, exactly. It wasn't, like, it wasn't 30% or 40% or anything like that. Okay. Right. So she said, this is so hormone driven. I don't think the chemo is worth the complications. I'm worried about long-term side effects, um, all of those things. So she said without any further information that she didn't want to proceed with chemo. Okay. And we'll come back to talk about that, but I want to, I want to just comment on the, um, the, the insight that you had knowing what you do to choose your own oncologist. Cause for a, for a lay person, sometimes that's in the hands of whoever the, whoever performed the biopsy and it's just a referral. Sometimes it'll be a primary care physician who gets results and say, go see this person. Um, and if you don't have that insight into how, like, what do you look for in a medical oncologist or even why do I need to go see a different oncologist? If you remove the tumor, aren't you my oncologist? And, and, um, it's one thing I, I try to tell my students so that they can tell their patients and their family members because they get questions about that too. Okay. So um, your oncologist says uh, no chemo. Did they, now did Oncotype uh, come into play for this decision? So that test was certainly available. Um, so part of my belief that I was going to need some chemo was that the uh, the system where I had my surgery, all the same system, you know, the surgery and the, can uh, the chemo and all of that is done at the same system. But they were working on their own internal product that would essentially rival Oncotype. And so, again, I had seen those results. So the internal program suggested that I would be on the intermediate risk, but the very low end, like the very far left, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I went to that appointment thinking that I was intermediate risk or I would probably be intermediate risk. And that's why I would need chemo or I wanted to talk about it. Um, my oncologist was convinced that that model was not accurate, that based on my hormone receptor status and that barely above 14% KI67, that I was low risk. So she had a differing opinion, if you will, as to what my true risk with chemo or without chemo would be. Um, so she was, she was happy to proceed without any chemo. Okay. So then the decisions made no chemo. Okay. And now, mm. <laughs> okay. So that's what she said, right? She said, I don't want to give you chemo. And I said, I want you to run the Oncotype. Okay. Because I wanted some data. Like I agreed kind of with that internal model, but I wanted the numbers. So I insisted that she run the Oncotype. Okay. And what did that, what was the recurrence, recurrence score on the Oncotype? Uh, 12. 12. Okay. So then, and then a couple of years later, Taylor RX comes out and shows that was the right decision not to get chemo where, um, 
that intermediate risk. Even some of the folks in the 16 to 25 still showed some benefit from chemo, even though they were still in the intermediate risk. But for a long time, the folks, um, even before uh, we had good data with Oncotype, those folks that had you know, like one you know, negative risk factor, but some other ones, it was very you know, required of, you know, there just wasn't a lot of great guidance for medical oncology on what to do for, for many years for, for these women. Okay. So, uh, so that was one decision. Okay. So and it sounds like you and your, uh, your oncologist engaged in some shared decision-making <laughs> about how to proceed. And that sounded like it went well and worked well. You guys worked well together. Uh, now the next decision would be, uh, which hormonal treatment to go? Do you go with uh, tamoxifen alone, or do you do tamoxifen or an AI plus some sort of ovarian suppression with the soft and text data that, that came out? So was that something that was discussed? So um, the soft and text data were very new, like probably only a couple months old, but it was available at that time, right? So we did have a conversation that obviously I was getting tamoxifen because I was premenopausal and um, there wasn't a question of really any other uh, any other alternatives until I asked her about ovarian suppression. And she said, based on these two trials, again, I agree with we're just going to do tamoxifen alone. That was my preference. I was not real gung-ho to do some sort of ovarian suppression at 39. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was glad to have that data to back it up, of course. Yeah, when those data first came out, you know, there's this improvement in, in disease-free or relapse-free survival and um, I just kept thinking, yeah, there's a school of thought that sometimes, especially in older women, this is a chronic disease and it just seems like that's going to be bad on the bones. And, you know, I think the, the initial fault wasn't very short and they didn't see a big fracture risk, but in the one, uh, in, in the medicine in 2018, they showed osteoporosis occurred in 3.9% osteoporosis. And this is eight year follow-up. Tamoxifen and ovarian suppression, 7.2% osteoporosis. And if you had the AI, plus ovarian suppression, it doubled. It was like 14.8% osteoporosis. And those results will probably be magnified the earlier you start ovarian suppression because mm-hmm. you still got some bone building years um, uh, in you at that point. So, so you go with tamoxifen alone. Mm-hmm. Now, um, was the plan at that point five years and stop? Or were you thinking 10 or? Is so we talked about 10 right out of the gate. Um, the data, you know, was kind of leaning in that direction anyway, but the fact that if we went with five years, I would be 44 when we stopped, which to me did not feel like a long time. (laughs) Um, so we led off the discussion with 10 years. Um, she's, my oncologist has made several comments that I'll probably be on this the rest of my life. Like what I'm taking that as at the 10 year mark, we're going to reassess. Um, but frankly, I've tolerated the tamoxifen extremely well. Um, my family has a history of very late menopause, so I would expect I, I'm going to make it in my 50s probably before I would be qualified for an AI anyway. Um, so I'm at the five-year mark right now, and we just decided we'll reassess at 10 years. Yeah. So, so if we run through the list of you know the common tamoxifen toxicities, hot flashes? Yeah. <laughs> That's very real. <laughs> now, how would you describe those? So let's say, you know, how should I tell students? How should I teach students what these hot flashes are like uh, on tamoxifen? Um, I would say it feels like my ears are on fire. <laughs> like, I know that some ladies have a lot of sweating mm-hmm. with hot flashes. Like, I personally don't sweat, right? But it feels like my ears are a thousand degrees 
Um, and for me, it's almost always at night. Almost like I'll wake up in the middle of the night and my head is so hot. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very odd. It's not like as much electrical that other patients have used. That's just my experience is actually like the feeling of heat. Yes. And has it ever gotten to the point that you would want to talk about, you know, citalopram or venlafaxine or anything like that or not that severe? Um, for me, it was never that severe. It was annoying, right? Like, you know, wake up and then, but you know, a couple times a week at first, and it's actually really tapered off in the last couple of years. So I, again, my, actually the physician assistant brought that up for me at one point, did I want to talk about some therapy? And I never felt that strongly about it. Um, but again, maybe if I experience hot flashes the way some other ladies do with that electrical feeling or the sweating that is obviously, you know, noticeable, maybe I would have uh, chosen that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, any of the adherence data on, on women who complete five, it, just five years of hormonal therapy, there are two things that, that really, really impair that adherence. One is hot flashes, especially a little bit more with tamoxifen. And the other, which is a little bit more prevalent with AIs, are arthralgias and myalgias. So have you had any of the muscle and joint aches? No, I have not. Um, I like to blame the tamoxifen for all kinds of things. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I'm gaining weight. It has nothing to do with my terrible eating habits or anything. But other than the hot flashes, uh, again, I really, really hit the jackpot. Um, it's, I've tolerated it really well. Well, you sound like a good patient then if you're trying to blame everything on, on the <laughs> drug. Uh, I hear that a lot from, from uh, my, my oncologist colleagues. Is this patients complain that uh, this drug is causing um, problems in their marriage or whatever. <laughs> right, right. It cannot possibly be any other factors. Right? No, no, it's not the chemo. <laughs> That, that, that's probably not the key. Although sometimes it is. Um, okay, so you've been on this journey, you know, for a while, right? For about not quite five years, right? Uh, actually, it was January was five years exactly. January's five yeah. years. Okay, so you've been on this journey for five years, and you know, you, you see cancer patients every day that you're in clinic or in the hospital, and you talk about cancer, how to treat it with your students. So, you know, how is that? How is being a cancer survivor changed? how you are as a clinician and how you are as a pharmacy educator? Yeah. Oh, what a good question. Um, <laughs> it's really complicated, I guess. I'll start, I'll start off with that. It's very complicated. Um, I have a lot of mixed feelings, like continuing to practice in oncology when I didn't have to take chemo, right? Like I have a lot of residual guilt that I was so lucky to not sit in that chair and get the chemo that I'm counseling these patients about, right? So again, maybe that's my own internal, <laughs> I need more therapy or something, but I have a lot of internal guilt. Like I didn't do anything different. I didn't pray any harder. I didn't, you know, like do anything different with my life, but somehow I got a pass on the chemo that I'm counseling this patient about. So that to me has been very like internal struggling um, about, you know, why that is. Um, but on the flip side, I feel like it made me a lot more empathetic with my patients. Like, I really thought before all this started that I was empathetic. I really thought like, oh, I, you know, I understand what these patients are going through. And no, I did not. Um, I still don't because I didn't have to take chemo, but I understand a lot more about their feelings and how afraid they are. Um, and likewise, I feel like I understand or I appreciate a lot more um, that patients are angry about this. Um, I personally had like a lot of anger about why this happened and why this happened to my family. And I feel like that's really overlooked, especially in breast cancer, um, where 
everything's rosy and you wear pink and you're a girl and you fight like one and like all that kind of mm -hmm. image things. That was not my experience. Um, and I feel like I'm more sympathetic to ladies that don't have that experience now. Yeah. And, and we see, you know, if you, if you work in just general medical oncology, like I mostly do, you see a lot of breast cancer and um, there are, you know, it's certainly not a, you know, every disease and every type of every patient's that are heterogeneous, but there are a lot of typical breast cancer patients because there are so many women diagnosed everywhere with breast cancer that sometimes I get overlooked as opposed to the interesting case that you don't see very often down the hall if you're in a training environment. Uh, what about the, 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 the fear and or anxiety with follow-up scans and the, you know, the fear of recurrence, like how much does that pop in your head on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, or is it just kind of suppressed or, 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 you know, how does that affect you? Sure. Sure. Um, so at first that is all that I thought about literally all that I thought about for weeks or months after I went back to work. Um, but that is disappearing. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe it's, it's certainly less as time goes by. Um, and other breast cancer survivors that I talked to said there will be a time when this is not the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. And that is true. Like that for me is true. Like I think about it every day, but not around the clock every day. Um, I think for me, like I'm in a, again, a pretty unique situation in that I can't have any follow-up imaging. Um, there is no screening or diagnostic mammograms anymore because I had a double mastectomy. Um, there, an MRI is not recommended unless I have symptoms, which I certainly don't want to have. <laughs> so there is no like scan anxiety for me because I don't get scans, but on the flip side, I don't get scans. So I'm anxious about that. <laughs> um, but I think also like the thing that kind of rattles me the most, honestly, is when I get to see a patient that had breast cancer 10 years ago and now is admitted for suspected recurrence in her lungs or in her liver, right? So like those moments, I usually have to like excuse myself and go get some coffee from the nurse's station just to like catch my breath, you know? But again, I have to remember that like I'm seeing the unusual case, everybody else is fine. I'm doing the very best that I can and everybody's got something, right? <laughs> so, um, so I would say I worry, I worry about it less. Um, but I feel like I appreciate some of my experiences more. Like I, you know, once in a while I'll see my kids or, you know, do something and just be like, wow, I'm so glad I get to be here to do this. Even if it's just something kind of what other, I think other people would think is kind of meaningless. You yeah, know, like a, a small moment like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that is one of the, um, one of the benefits of working in oncology, um, is that you, unfortunately you see patients who are not having their best day or the best time or oftentimes the worst part of their life. And that, uh, it's not the same as seeing a small thing and appreciating it for me anyway. It's, um, I see the little thing that I've turned into a big thing and I realized, you know what, after what I saw today at the hospital, that little thing I was worrying about is not as big of a thing to worry about as I thought. And it, it I've only, that's, it, you know, keeps me grounded and, and focused on what, what really matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely agree. I mean, I think 
there have been times where like my husband and I are snipping at each other that the laundry's not done and we haven't figured out the carpool for this evening. And then we're like, wait a second. <laughs> like, the fact that we get to have this moment is a big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. So that has been um, a very good thing in the long run, like just a little bit of uh, better perspective, I guess. Well, well, Karen, thank you so much, so much for sharing your story and, and all the personal details and everything. Uh, I think everyone's going to really appreciate it. Do you have any final final thoughts to, to offer before we go? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Like, I really appreciate um, the opportunity to be here and the chance to talk about things from a different perspective. Um, so thanks for oh, letting me be your welcome. guest. No problem. Um, no, I mean, I guess that, like, <laughs> I hope that oncology pharmacists that are listening, um, if you can get them contacted with me or if anybody wants to talk about this more or if anybody listening has been through the same thing and wants to just, um, you know, let off some steam, I am very happy to do that. Yeah. And so they could, they could probably find your email uh, on the Duquesne yeah. family website. Yeah. So um, if you can spell Duquesne, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, but I am on Duquesne University website under School of Pharmacy. Um, but, or again, please, you know, contact John and he, I am happy to talk anybody through this because again, uh, I think having cancer while you work in the oncology field is probably its own little niche. <laughs> and so, um, I'm, I'm happy to, to speak with anybody about that. Well, thank so. you. Yeah. And I would say maybe even in, you know, particularly somebody who, who is, um, you know, debating whether or not to get treat if they work in oncology to get treatment in the same facility where you know everyone, mm. what are, you know, you probably have some things, some, some insight to offer for that very unique situation for those folks having gone through that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is, ladies, mammograms, seriously. Like I am living proof that they save lives. As, as you said at the beginning of this, there's a lot of debate about when and when should you start. And again, that's all you know, well and good. But should you get a mammogram? Yes. Like, I don't have any qualms that that one test completely changed my outcome. Had I waited another year, oh my God, right? So, yes, get it done. All right. Well, thank you, Karen. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.